welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're delighted to, to see, you, see you with us. What we will do after this session is post some thoughts on LinkedIn, uh, sort of some of the key themes from the discussion, and on our newly launched website. And if I may, I'm just going to plug the newly launched website for, for a moment. Um, please do come and have a look at it. Um, it's got things like uh, details of the forthcoming events. It's also got information of recordings and so on and so forth. And I don't know if we've got any football fans. Um, I feel like we're all football fans at the moment. Um, but uh, you, you will, you, you may have seen the piece on the BBC website about um, how one of the many, many virtues of Gareth Southgate, all of which no doubt will have evaporated by tomorrow if things don't go our way tonight, um, is his insistence on diversity in, in sort of his team around him, not just in the squad, the playing squad, but the way he seeks diverse views from non-footballing people. And, and a lot of the points in that article on the BBC News website about the importance of diversity chimed with a lot of the themes we covered in our, in our recent webinar webinar on, on neurodiversity. So um, check that article out, but particularly do check out the recording of our, our recent webinar there. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce our panel. Um, we've got in no particular order, uh, Rachel O'Donoghue, uh, who is a partner and head of financial planning at Buzzacott. And we've also got James Curry, who's a senior tax manager at Buzzacott. We've got David, David Shufflebotham from Pep Up Consulting on partner remuneration. Beth Hale, uh, a partner and GC at CM Murray, uh, focusing on employment and partner law. And uh, finally, last but by no means least, my colleague, uh, Fiona, colleague and partner, uh, Fiona Poole, who's a private client partner at Morris Turner Gardner. Today, we're, we're looking at, at personal risk planning for partners. We know that partners of professional services firms spend a lot of time thinking about their clients and their clients' interests and what's best for their clients. Um, but that can often be at the detriment of their own personal uh, arrangements. It's that classic physician heal thyself. Um, often uh, lawyers, for example, have the least well-arranged legal affairs, thinking about something rather close to home. And so what we're going to do today is look at some of the things that partners should be considering in terms of managing their personal risks and how they kind of can and, and should interact with an arrangements that the firm can put in place and sort of working out how the firm can get the balance right and what partners can do and what, what everybody should be doing to sort of to maximise the opportunities there. And, and I think particularly minimise and mitigate risk. I think I should probably just mention that this could be quite a gloomy way to start a Wednesday morning. Um, we're going to talk about illness. We're going to talk about loss of mental capacity. We're going to talk about death. Um, there's going to be a lot of sort of focus on um, partner mortality. So apologies in advance for that. We'll probably split it into two types of scenarios, kind of the normal scenario for, for partner partners leaving firms in the sense that, you know, a partner completes their career, retires to the garden and, and lives to a ripe old age. And then we probably also focus on sort of catastrophe type scenarios. For example, something terrible happens like a partner becomes ill or dies even whilst there's still an active partner in the firm. And I think we'll probably split the two scenarios in that way, because obviously firms have to think about both possible uh, scenarios. So apologies in advance for uh, probably some gloomy messaging, um, but um, as we often discuss uh, at MTG, um, there are clients to whom you say if you die, and there are some clients to whom you say when you die. Obviously, when is the right way to deal with it, but, but some people prefer if. And uh, let's be honest, if we haven't spent some time contemplating our own 
mortality over the last 18 months, then now's the time. So moving on, let's let's start by setting the scene generally. I think, Rachel, if, if we may, can we start by sort of turning to you? If a partner of a professional services firm came to you for advice, what sort of general themes and ideas would you cover with them if you were having an overarching discussion about the types of risk management and protections and, and um, plans that they ought to have in place when they're looking at their kind of estate and their personal assets as, as a whole? It's probably take an hour in itself, Corin, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. I suppose the two key areas in that when people come to me, they're often looking, to be honest, at maybe funding for retirement or maybe looking something to do with their family, um, planning around education or property. One area that you touched on that maybe people don't look at often enough is the catastrophe type situation. You know, what happens if everything doesn't go to plan? And I think certainly as a partner myself, I'm very much conscious that people really focus, as you said, they focus on getting to the stage of building up their business, their, their sector, becoming a partner. And pretty much, I think, thinking that, well, actually, if that goes well, then in retirement is largely taken care of, or I can get back to you know funding pensions or investments when I'm at a certain level of earnings. And often neglecting, to be honest, the, the planning around what if, so what if I become ill or, or what if, um, worst case, you know, I, I die in the early stage of a career. But I think particularly if we look at, the let's say the brighter scenario so retiring to the garden etc one area in particular that people will generally have either maybe limited knowledge of or just have neglected is probably the pension funding so from a risk point of view most people who come to me will have um, had pensions in the past you know maybe they've worked um, as a salary partner employee in the same firm or other firms and they might have a whole series of different pensions usually um, have no idea what's actually what's going to translate into in terms of future income. Uh, and that's not just partners, that's people in general. It's, it's very much only nerds like myself that are really interested in pensions and actually looking at what it's going to mean in, in future income. So usually what will happen is somebody becomes a partner quite a bit afterwards um, in, in terms of equity partner, they'll realize that they don't have a pension. Um, clearly, they're, they're not an employee anymore and they will get around to it after a period of time that can make quite a significant difference. So, so that gap in terms of funding, so moving typically from having an employer maybe paying 5% or something like their salary and they paying 5%, um, that could have a massive difference. But I suppose the key part is as well that a lot has changed around pensions. So back in 2006, when the government brought in pension simplification, as they amusingly called it, um, since then, they've changed it drastically from you know, being able to fund a couple hundred thousand to your pension, so ideal if, if you left it later in life, to now for some people being as low as 4,000, depending on one's earnings. So there are planning opportunities there, and this is the kind of thing I speak to, to partners about when they come to me, but it's certainly something that people shouldn't defer. I think, that's, I think that's probably the key message I would say. I completely understand that I know myself as a partner, you have a lot going on in the early stages, particularly as a partner, um, and often it, it, you, you just park it basically. But the issue has been is that the government have focused a lot on this area. Um, you get tax relief and pensions, so they're very tax efficient. That means it's less revenues for the government. And that really is very much a hot topic at the moment. So many people when we're looking at it, we're highlighting what they should be doing. So what's that overall lifetime plan? Um, and is there anything they can do to catch up, basically? So from a risk point of view, I think it's a real risk for, for partners at the moment because um, the government, as I said, has brought the allowances down to as low as 4,000 for, for people with earnings over about um, 312,000. 
Some people may have carry forward that they can do in pensions. So we talk about that in meetings as well, but that only lasts for a limited number of years. So I think the key thing is what you wouldn't want to get to is in a position maybe in a few years time that you think now is the time I start funding my pension and all you can put in is 4,000. Um, they don't need to come to me to, to understand that clearly that's, that's not going to be enough. So I think it's very much current, it's prioritizing things. So the same way you would in a business, you won't be able to um, do all the kind of savings or pensions that one might need to. You've got to balance it with other commitments as well. But it's sitting down and saying, well, actually, what are the things I should tackle right now? What are the things maybe that, would it be ISAs or investments that I could maybe park to a later stage if I've got limited funds? Um, so, so it's looking at the overall plan. And that's one thing that I see consistently that, that people often have, have done their best in terms of accumulating assets and they have reasonable income, but they don't really have a plan of what's the timing retirement, what's that going to look like, how much do I need? Um, so, so that typically comes up quite a lot. I suppose also on the slightly more gloomy side, as you said, is that sometimes people don't know if they've got enough cover. So they don't know, have they got enough life cover? Have they got income protection? They may have an idea of what they have through the partnership. Uh, and to be honest, that knowledge can vary as well. Some LLPs and partnerships are, are better at maybe communicating that than others. Um, sometimes it's you get a lot of information when you become a partner and that's all thrown at you. And then you know people move on to other things and uh, it's not something that's revisited. So it, it's quite common to see people where they had maybe reasonable cover as an employee and they either have in some cases no cover at all uh, as a partner which is obviously a high risk situation, or they, they've got a, a sufficient amount, but then maybe they're taking another mortgage or maybe they have to start a family and they really need to revisit that. But, but generally the risk I think largely is that people aren't clear on what they have to the firm and what they should um, look at separately. Um, sometimes it might be the case that um, they think that even if they were to move from the firm that they could continue the cover. And without going into too much detail, that, that's not always as easy as it might sound. So, so it's very much a discussion around if everything goes well, have you got everything in the right place? What should you be doing? Um, if things don't, you know, what kind of cover do you have? Are, you, are your family prepared? Um, you know, what happens if you're ill or otherwise? What would they expect to receive? You know, how, how would this affect your plans? And I know we're going to touch on later in terms of how the firm might be involved with this, but, but as a minimum, I always suggest to people to be very clear in terms of what the firm will provide, what the tax treatment is. Um, and I know J James will, will probably touch on that as well. And, and particularly, even if you get to retirement, you know, what happens at that point? Um, James and I often work with clients where they're planning for retirement and they may come to us and say, well, I'm going to work as a consultant maybe for a year or so towards the end. And this is how I'm going to structure it. And we will often take a step back and say, well, actually, you know, maybe you want to look at it slightly differently. Maybe there are reliefs you can use. It, it's very much about making sure you get the advice and not neglecting your own affairs. Um, I think it, it's far too easy to, to concentrate on the day-to-day. -day. Um, uh, so, as I said, it could be hours of a discussion, but they're probably the main themes that we, we tend to discuss, Corin. That's great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, yeah, lo lots and lots to think about. And you mentioned there sort of the the kind of the if everything goes well and you, and you get to retire that's great I mean fee as a private client lawyer you probably spend a disproportionate amount of time <laughs> thinking about kind of worst worst case scenario uh, type things and, and it'd be interesting to hear from you as a as a private client lawyer um, what individuals should be doing to manage their risks and what they should be putting in place from a from a legal perspective. 
Absolutely. And it, I always find it incredibly surprising how few partners in professional practices that, whether it's legal practice, tax practice, financial practice, um, don't have wills in place and, um, and aren't so okay with what happens if you don't have a will in place. So what the intestacy rules are, because they're, they're far from what you expect a lot of the time, particularly if you're not married or you don't have any children. And then you're thinking about, well, let's think of a scenario where partner did pass away at his or her desk without a will. Who, well, who, firstly, who's going to deal with the estate if they have no wife and no children? You then have a list of family members that you'd go through, uh, including your parents, then your brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters, um, grandparents, aunts and uncles, half aunts and uncles who not only have the, the right to apply to deal with your estate, but also have rights to, to your estate. Um, which is often not what one expects. And even if um, a partner or anybody is married and doesn't have a will, and so you go through these intestacy rules, then surprisingly little goes to a spouse um, at the end of the day. There's a, there's a, a legacy of all of your chattels, there's a legacy of 275,000, and then everything else is split in half, first half to your spouse, and then the second half to um, your children or those other family members in the order that I've just cited. So people aren't aware of that. And, um, and as I say, it's, it's not just general partners, but a lot of private client partners I find in the past who haven't done wills. So wills definitely, but of course, don't think a, um, a firm can make somebody do it their will they might encourage them they may say well we'll pay for you to have a will done you know they but you can't make somebody do it um and i think even less common um is seeing people with lasting powers of attorney in place so you mentioned earlier well, what happens if somebody loses capacity and that may be through a, an illness and at any age and i often use an example of a, a dear friend of mine who sadly passed away last year who was uh, my age, I went to school with him, but had early onset dementia, which deteriorated rather quickly. Um, but of course, you also get examples where somebody's had an accident in there and don't have their mental or physical capacity um, to do work after that. So who, um, who steps into their shoes as their attorneys? Um, and a big question I, I think I find if somebody has passed away or has lost capacity and you've got attorneys in their shoes, uh, it, they say, well, well, what's my entitlement from the business? Surely I own a part of the business now. And you think, well, that's not quite how it works. There may be interest in capital in the business or, or drawings that are owed, but um, it's, it's really important to have um, a very good discussion between the firm or an allocated partner or team in the firm and whoever's stepping into the shoes as an executor or attorney, otherwise um, often very um, stressful uh, conversations can follow. I think uh, one of the things I wanted to draw out of what Rachel's just said is having insurance in place, so death and service insurance, life insurance in place, um, and making sure that that's written in trust for a start, um, so it's not paid into somebody's estate. And often, if the insurance is arranged by the firm, then that's done automatically. But there are some wrinkles that can come with that. Um, and one example that we've had reasonably recently is where nominated beneficiaries of the policy proceeds were actually living overseas um, in a European country which doesn't particularly like trusts. 
and so then ensued a lot of um, conversations with tax and tax and legal experts in that country as well as here on saying well what how is that payment out treated for them and so sometimes I think it's important particularly if there's international firms or even if there are just partners with families overseas that if you're nominating people who live overseas then perhaps you need a slightly different treatment for that or, or at least an understanding of what's going to to follow because that um, is quite tricky the the other thing i think i wanted to mention on insurance trusts in particular is um who the trustees are because it, it may be fine if if your firm has a trust company who acts as trustee but more often than not, I see individual partners named as trustees of that whilst holding the insurance policies. And it's, it's one of the things that gets missed off the list if that partner then retires or, um, or resigns for, or dies at their desk or whatever. You know, yeah, you, it really does. You're quite right. It, it, get missed. it gets missed quite frequently. And then, of course, nobody's appointed in another, another trustee in their place. And, you know, that's when... The trouble starts. Um. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really good point, Fee, and I, and I think a lot of firms do, do sort of have the the to do list and think, right, well, we've got that sort of insurance arrangement in place now, right, good, tick, and it doesn't go on to say like a partner exit checklist. You know, is this person a, a trustee of this particular insurance trust? So, I think that's a really good reminder for firms not to lose track of that or just to kind of audit it on a regular basis. I would always suggest on an exit checklist, it's on there, and um, and it's a standing annual agenda point. Although you don't want to be getting past it but it should be on the risk register as well yeah i think that's a, a really good point um as colp i should have said risk register before you so apologies everybody and <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, i think it would be really interesting at this stage just to get a a little a little flavor of of what we believe to be the case is, is true in practice so we're going to do a really quick poll if we can for it to keep everybody on their toes um just to see whether or not it's true that we as professionals are the worst possible people to talk about these things. So the first question we have is whether or not the people here have a will in place. Uh, shall we see what people have uh, got to say about that? Ah, interesting, half and half. That's that's really interesting that we've got about half. And then the second question we have is around, is around whether or not people have lasting powers of attorney in place, whether it's for health or whether it's for finance or indeed for, for both kind of loss of capacity for those sorts of decisions. Uh, let's see. Gosh, interesting. Yes. And, and a real a real difference there on lasting powers of attorney in the sense that you know a lot, lot of people have that awareness of having a will in place. And I think we find that across the board in terms of people have a, a real awareness of wills and the importance of having a will. But capacity issues, um, despite the government saying that LPAs are supposed to be easy, you can just fill in an online form, are, are not that straightforward. And, and it's not something that we plan for. Interesting. Thank you, everybody. That that's that's fascinating. So, James, if it's OK with you, I thought we'd just look for a minute, if we can, at some of the sort of the tax implications. Obviously, uh, Fiona's talked about, you know, people, uh, the implications of death and some of the kind of the legal steps and the practical steps there. R Rachel's talked about some of the plans you have in place, but also some bear traps that people um, could fall into were they not advised by by you and, and you and Rachel on, on these sorts of things. So it will be really interesting to hear about the things that partners as self-employed people will be uh, prioritising and the considerations they will be taking into account when they're sort of weighing up all these different sort of personal risk issues. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, as you briefly mentioned there, when looking at partners in a partnership for tax purposes, we're always in this 
webinar, we're looking at self-employed partners and we're not falling foul of the salaried members rules or that they're just a salaried partner as an employee. So I think firms, many firms are alive to this as the rules have been introduced since 2014, but it's important that they do have a record of this so that if the revenue did come knocking one day that it's been reviewed. So on the basis that a self-employed partner, that is the case, um, their profit allocation is determined by the partnership tax return, which is driven by the partnership accounts, and that's what they're going to be paying tax on. Um, and the major pinch points for them, as they're probably aware of in three weeks' time, is there's a tax payment coming up with the second one um, due at the end of January. And each firm I've worked with have different policies for tax reserving as to whether they reserve at all and partners pay gross. They could have a full reserving policy where there's a flat rate of 45% and over-reserving. And that, that tax reserve appearing on the firm's balance sheet as working capital. And there is a risk there that if the firm is struggling, as we may have seen some firms in a pandemic with client, clients going bust, work drying up, that that could be at risk. And it's a personal tax liability for a partner. So if it's not paid, the, the bailiffs are going to be knocking on your door. So you want to ensure that those payments are made and just understanding that that is the case. In terms of if something unexpected were to happen, I think both Rachel and Fiona have already mentioned the different insurance policies that firms can have in place for their partners, such as life insurance, income protection, critical illness, and key person. So when we're looking at tax, there's two aspects to consider. The first one is what tax relief you're getting on the premiums. So I don't think the partners are probably too bothered about that, but it's nice to know if they're getting relief at 45% or if it's coming out of drawings. More importantly, though, it's understanding what the tax relief is going, or if there is, what the tax position is when the proceeds are paid out, if there is an unfortunate event such as a, a critical illness. Um, we did have a case looking at key person insurance for an LLP. It was um, a relatively small firm, five partners, but it was one key partner who was earning 90% of the fees and they were looking at cover for his death. And in this case, it was getting to a case that they wouldn't get tax relief on the premiums, but on a payout, if something were to happen to him, the income would be accounted for as part of the accounts that would be subject to tax on the members. So when you're entering these policies, it's important that you look at how they're structured and what's going to happen on a payout. And I think that touches on a, on a point we, we'll hopefully come back to around that question of who's the insurance for? Is the insurance to kind of keep the business going, uh, you know, manage cash flow, those sorts of things? Or is the insurance to, you know, kind of support the family who've lost the, the, the kind of the breadwinner, for example. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, James, but I think that highlights a, a really neat point, which, which as I say, we people need clarity on. Yeah, that's right. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, was there any, I mean, I suppose the, the other point we touched on slightly, but I, I guess there is the, the tax implication in, in terms of um, making sure that, for example, things like inheritance tax are borne in mind when, when doing planning uh, for, for partners, um, to, to make sure you don't end up with the unexpected surprises there as well if you end up with a partner sadly dying. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, as Fiona mentioned, ensuring your will is in place and you've looked at what's made up of your estates and that as a self-employed individual that you've considered business property relief 
Yeah, great. Um, yeah, that, that's a really good point. Thank you so much, James. So we've thought about what sort of partners should have in place. Um, but I think we also need to think about how that interacts with not just the partner's individual plans, but the firm in terms of what the firm is doing and how the two interact. Because what we wanted in this discussion was to bring those two aspects together. Because you get, you know, people talking about what partners should have in place and then you get advisors to LLPs and to, to partnerships. But you rarely get someone who sort of sits in the middle and says, right, OK, how does this fit together? And I think that's a, a problem that a lot of professional firms had. So I wondered whether, um, Beth, you would mind just commenting briefly on how kind of firms could or should accommodate the sort of risks we've been talking about that are kind of the partner's problem in one sense, but also very much the firm's problem if they come to, to be visited on the firm. And, and I guess from, a, from another perspective, I mean, should firms be paternalistic about this? How, how, much, how much is this the firm's problem? I mean, how much this is the firm's problem depends to some extent on the sort of culture and, and um, the way the firm is and how paternalistic it wants to be and indeed how paternalistic it is in other, in other ways. I think the problem is that all too often what we see is that agreements, LLP and partnership agreements, are just silent on these issues. They only come up, they only get addressed and they only get tackled in crisis situations. And at that stage, everyone's, you know, it's high drama and everyone's trying to work out what should be happening, what is happening, whether that's right and whether the firm has got proper provisions in place to deal with it. So I think there's a real balance for firms to be struck between clarity and flexibility. So they want to probably make it clear what benefits will be available, who to, um, and in, in their constitutional documents, ideally, but also retain the ability to amend those benefits to allow for things like changes in premium, changes changes in best available cover on the market. So it's, it's managing that kind of flexibility, clarity, sort of balance is quite difficult. I think the key things that they should be thinking, that firms should be thinking about dealing within their constitutional documents, or, or if not in policies which are sort of clear, and I think part of the problem is that firms, employers, firms often do this for employees, but then don't have similar provisions in place for partners and just sort of assume that partners will kind of get on with it. And actually, you know, that you need to deal with it up front. And it's much easier to deal with when a crisis situation does come if you have a few things in your documents. So firstly, what, what about sick pay for partners? How long might the firm continue to pay drawings, profit share to partners when they're off sick? How long will that last? Is there any tapering provisions? Is there any way of, of cutting those pay, that pay, reducing that pay if someone is off long-term sick? And clarity about how that sick pay might tie in with any income protection, PHI coverage, as well as other insurance scheme. When does sick pay stop? Where does insurance cover kick in? Is there an obligation on the partners to apply for, for PHI for income protection cover? Um, if so, when is, that, when is that obligation triggered? Um, does the firm have the right, I just mentioned reducing pay, but does the firm have a right to reduce pay where someone is in receipt of PHI cover? Often PHI will cover a percentage of remuneration. And in some circumstances, if the firm has no right to reduce their pay, reduce that person's pay, the firm might um, have to, uh, might end up having to pay top up payments to take that person up to the 100%. So it's, it's sort of clarity around that. Clarity around the impacts of a partner's death on what happens to capital, what happens to, to profit share which is earned but not yet paid um, and you know what just having that clarity in the agreement is incredibly helpful so just to make it clear when those things do happen. 
Thank you. Yeah, lots to think about in short. And, and as you say, something that often isn't tackled until, until a crisis situation, by which time, by, by definition, it's, it's too late and it's very much tailored to those specific circumstances rather than sort of thought about in terms of what philosophically the firm feels is the right way to, to deal with it. Dealing with things on those case-by-case basis is you massively increase your risk of discrimination claims because if you're dealing with it one thing at a time then you potentially lack consistency, no one can remember what happened last time and then you, you have the risk of, of treating people differently and if that difference could be argued to be from a, for, for some kind of protected characteristic on the grounds of some protected characteristic then you risk a discrimination claim so that's why clarity is important as well for, for that consistency purpose I, I i can completely see that you can see that and also from a from a purely practical point of view you could set precedents that you don't want to follow you know, you, you know ignoring the protected characteristics although it's an incredibly valuable point you, you might just end up somewhere where you wouldn't want to end up for everybody but you, you're then stuck with it because that's what you did in that particular instance yeah, but now i say that when you do come across these situations you know, I've dealt with it on the death end of things, situations before where they're dealing with executives first time, finding out who needs to deal with it, not just which partner's got more, more plate or more time on their hands to, to deal with it, less on their plate at the time. Um, but what I found that after those matters, we're then working more with the firms of how to then put good practices and policies in place to go forward because they don't want to go through that time consuming and quite you know, emotionally draining hassle for, for both sides of it in the future. I think that's a, a really good point, Fiona. Thank you. And I mean, David, if, if we could turn to you, I, I know that when we sort of sort of were planning this discussion, you you you, you shared with us some of your experiences of, of supporting firms in practice with exactly these sorts of issues coming up. And so sadly, have some practical experience of sort of working through these issues with the partners and with the families. Um, and I just wondered if you were able to elaborate on some of those um, difficulties and challenges that, that people face in, the, face in these very emotionally fraught situations. Yeah, thanks, Corinne. All the input that you've had so far is is extremely valid and having the right provisions and having thought about the right things at a firm level is is critical, number one, goes without saying. But some of the practical challenges you have, um, which we've just been talking about, Fiona and Beth, you know, incredibly emotionally fraught and sensitive and distressing period for people to deal with. And I always think that one of the obligations of the firm is to make sure that somebody really understands how all these things work. The level of cover that people have uh, either provided by the firm or provided by the individual, mandatory or, or optional, um, will depend on the culture of the firm. But knowing your way around that, so knowing what the provisions are, knowing how it's all going to interact, knowing how continuing drawings in the, in the case of ill health interact with a, with, a poli- with a PHI policy or income protection policy is going to be critical and not having to make it up on the hoof. Um, so having somebody with a responsibility with an eye to this will also deal with things like the, you know, uh, trustee you know retiring trustee provisions but having somebody who is on top of this is incredibly important as is having a really good relationship with your uh, insurance broker uh, and or the insurance um, provider because they will really be able to give you experience they deal with this all the time as to how this is likely to work so keeping up to date with how that's likely to work at what time you're likely to get payouts you know on death um who's going to be asking for a death certificate how will you handle all those things tiny little practical things 
that if you've got somebody on top of it, they can who's known to the people who are in trouble, who are in a difficult situation, is really, really useful. And it means that you don't end up to such an extent making it up on the hoof. Um, so having that liaison point of somebody who's senior enough to know what they're doing, knows how the decision making within the firm works and can and can really act within that uh, power structure as well is important because uh, if you need a, it, it, you know, it, if, it's a, if it's a meeting of trustees needs to take place or a meeting of the executive board or some other um, body, you've got to know your way around how that works, how long it's going to take. So you can manage the expectations of those people who are really distressed. And going back to, to sort of Rachel's points of, you know, how are we going to meet our, uh, our pretty, usually pretty significant commitments in these sort of circumstances to education, to property, to retirement, uh, to living, all those things. So I think that that is my number one point from an internal perspective is yes you've got to know what provisions you want to put in place but the the second thing is to say really make sure that you've got somebody who's on top of them who knows their way around them and who continually refreshes what they're doing because sadly these things happen i think over 20 years working as a hr director in, in major law firms i was i was thinking about it before the session there's probably half a dozen deaths over that time, and um, certainly quite a lot more uh, critical um, instances. We worked gotcha. on the we worked on the basis that it was about for one in a hundred people you'd have um, you'd have some sort of significant health illness or, or or death issue. I can I can understand that. Have you have you got any views on who that should be? I know, I know we often talk about in, in professional firms that. If we're talking about employees, it's obvious that it's an HR matter, but quite often kind of partner management and partner um, kind of care, if you like, is, is felt beyond HR, which I don't, I don't think is the right way of doing it. But you often see that partners are not part of kind of the HR sort of oversight in some firms. And that's probably not not a very sort of progressive way of looking at it. But do you have any particular views on on who that that linchpin should be? I don't have particular views on exactly who it should be, but I think there are some characteristics of that person that are, that are critical. So, first of all, I agree with you. If your firm is of a size to have a sophisticated HR team, you're probably of a size to have a pretty sophisticated partnership uh, accounts um, function as well. And I would say that's where your expertise um, sits because they'd be pretty sophisticated people. Therefore, you need somebody from within the leadership team who can rely on their expertise and add to it from the perspective of those power dynamics and they can keep on nudging that person in the leadership team to stay up to date to arrange for meetings with brokers to go through scenarios uh, with them that's that's sort of council of perfection i would say obviously in smaller firms you're not going to have that luxury so you might have a partnership accountant uh, you might have somebody in hr but it's probably going to be somebody more like a senior partner or somebody in a leadership position maybe the hr director it depends but what that person has to have when these issues come up is the time to deal with it because if they do not commit the time to do it that is not necessarily going to work out well for the firm and it certainly isn't going to help the families involved so it really is a situation where the firm has to recognize that 
this will take up a good chunk of time and it needs focus and it needs timely focus. You can't just say, oh, we'll deal with that at the next partnership meeting or we'll deal with that at the next um, board meeting if it needs to happen in the next three or four days. Thank you. That, that That's really useful. Um, let's move from sort of one catastrophe to, to another. We've, we've talked quite a lot now about um, partner death, um, so pretty cheery, as I say. Um, but let's think a little bit now about sort of capacity. Uh, it could be physical incapacity. It could be mental incapacity. And obviously, um, you know, if, if somebody goes under a bus that that's sort of quite binary you know one moment you're not you're fine the next you're you're different but by definition sometimes these things can happen over time um they could they could be because of the way that you're living your life in the case of some sort of addiction type issues and we all know that the life of a professional partner can be stressful at times those sorts of things and and, and this whole past year has, has shown how sort of well-being is such an important part of kind of continuing to to thrive as professionals and i wondered you know, we, obviously we can appreciate that physical and mental challenges can constrain a partner from, from doing their job properly, which, which could be a business risk, as well as thinking about it from the, the partner's perspective. And I wondered, Beth, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, I know we touched on it briefly earlier, but if you might sort of come back to some of the things that we look at, like the, the contract, the LLPD, to look at how those provisions work in practice, for example, in the, in the incident of maybe creeping incapacity or kind of an increasing inability to perform at a level that the person used to perform at and how the firm can manage that how the firm can support the partner and, and also where the bear traps lie in terms of not handling it badly yeah absolutely so I think again um, the key here is sort of clarity in documentation clarity and approach and consistency um, rather than having to work things out in the middle of a crisis situation um, I think it's a couple of things are really important. One is that firms have the right to remove and or suspend a partner where there is an incapacity issue. It's not going to be easy to rely on either of those things. And they would always be a sort of last resort, not least because of the disability discrimination risk, which I'll come on to in a minute. But it's even harder to do those things if you don't have the contractual right in the first place. So put those rights in there so that you so that you can do it if 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 it becomes absolutely necessary. Um, Think about how, and I talked a little bit about this earlier, but think about how your PHI, your income protection scheme ties in with the partnership deed, the LLP agreement. Those schemes often require someone to remain a partner, to remain a member in the firm, to receive the benefit. But then what you sometimes end up with is someone who is a, a member, but who does not have the capacity that they may never be able to work again, but they are still a member, still have voting rights, um, and they're still you know, receiving the payments under the PHI scheme. Think about having the power to remove voting rights and other sort of day-to-day -day management rights from that person without removing them as a partner so that you can keep them on in order to for them to benefit from that from that insurance um, and without impacting on the ability of the firm to make decisions um, again I think one really important point is that it has to be clear that a firm can expel can still retire someone um, even if to do so would involve depriving that person of their PHI benefits, there may be circumstances in which that just becomes necessary. And I think um, risking the risk of doing that where you don't have that kind of provision is that you end up as a firm essentially sort of self-insuring that PHI cover that, that if, if loss of cover forms part of a contractual claim that the partner brings against the firm. Having a clause that allows you to do that doesn't, doesn't take you all the way, but it's certainly better than not having it. 
Um, I think that's the, the I mean that's true in employment as well. But just the the risk is that you know they bring a breach of contract claim saying you expelled me. If you hadn't, I would have received this PHI cover for the rest of my life. That might be a really long period. Um, and you know the the firm is then essentially self-insuring that benefit. So um, just think about having that having that contractual right to terminate. Um, and just why is disability discrimination such a risk? Um, well, mainly because it brings with it the sort of spectre of uncapped compensation, um, which can be huge if um, I've just talked a little bit about career long loss, but that it can be a real issue if someone becomes incapacitated and um, uh, and will never be able to work again, then, then they might be talking about a career long loss in a disability claim. Um, and just to think that just any incapacity expulsion um, and indeed suspension should be just carried out extremely carefully with detailed medical and legal advice just to ensure that you get all the steps right, put in all the protections for the firm. But I think a mistake actually that people often make is not grasping the nettle early enough, that firms often make is not grasping the nettle early enough. I'm not suggesting that people should be booted out immediately, but just thinking about the, the what options they have talking to the partner concerned, talking to their family if necessary, if they have the right to do that, but you know, if there is a real capacity issue and just thinking about it, dealing with it head on early on, rather than ending up you know, a few years down the line when you haven't actually, everyone's been a bit sort of delicate and skirting around it, actually just dealing with it upfront as soon as you can, I think is a real, is, yeah, would be a key thing to do, I think. Uh, that sounds incredibly sensible. And actually, it just occurs to me, we probably um, a point at which you need to think about notifying the regulator as well. Um, if you were SA regulated or FCA regulated or something, that there may come a point at which, you know, if insurance are kicking in, for example, that person's not capable of, of delivering advice or supervising or, or whatever it is. And so that, that could be a regulatory issue. And again, that's something that has to be handled incredibly sensitively. Defending someone for capacity reasons, um, often that will be, you know, you, as a professional firm, you, you do have to think about negligence risk and risk to the yeah. firm in terms of, allowing them to continue to work when they actually aren't able to do that um, and that's a really really difficult decision to make especially where you're dealing with someone with whom you've worked for a long time and you know it's really there are lots of personal relationship issues to deal with and it's, it's really complicated but I think not dealing with it is worse than thinking about how you can deal with it early. Yeah and I don't know Fiona whether you've ever come across this but I mean have you ever found a situation where an attorney appointed under, say, a lasting power of attorney has been asked to be involved in, in business decisions where, where there sort of is a continuing partner, but they're sort of standing in their shoes for capacity oh, reasons. You, you know what I was going to say then, because they used to take my meat off. No, not so much that they've been asked to um, make decisions, but often attorneys will, will say, well, I've stepped into their shoes under property and finance because, you know, I, I should be involved. This, you know, this, I'm standing in their shoes. This is part of my business in their shoes and I should be making those decisions. Where that's not, they don't have, attorneys don't have the power to do that. And I think I see it more often in a case of outside partnership, but in corporate structures where um, you've got directors who, who then also want to appoint an attorney to step into their shoes as a director, which again, an attorney cannot do. And then you need to look at the articles of that company and say, well, what, what provisions are there then? Because even normally under model articles, if you see um, that a director has appointed an alternate director, even if the first director loses capacity, then that alternative director's position then falls away as well. So it needs to be dealt with very specifically in the articles. Um, but within partnership deeds, normally you can't take away somebody's vote unless there's specific provisions to enable you to do that. 
Thank you. And, and David, I was going to ask you actually to, to talk to us briefly about the impact on things like um, compensation, you know, remuneration. I mean, this is very much your bag. But if, if there are people who are taking prolonged absences from the business, perhaps because of illness, I, I mean, I, I'm probably thinking here about a sort of an illness where people are expecting to get better rather than, you know, sort of degenerative conditions where the expectation is that they will leave the business or not be able to contribute. I mean, how do you, I mean, particularly in, in remuneration systems that are performance linked, how, how do you manage that in practice? Really carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple of points here. So it really varies depending on what sort of circumstance the person finds themselves in. If you've got something like a, an ongoing recovery, you hope from cancer, uh, it might take somebody uh, a number of years to get back up to a, a settled uh, pattern of working, which might not be at the level they were working at before, but that might be a really sort of very varied um, uh, levels and, and they might not be able to commit fully. How that interacts with your um, with your drawings position, as, as Beth has pointed out, is really difficult to manage. And, you know, that interaction with insurance, income protection and the PHI and, um, and, and drawings and profit sharing has to be looked at on an individual basis and handled really carefully because you can prejudice the, the insurance if you go too early with with welcoming people back to work even if they feel able to do it you have to have it this goes back to my point of you have to have somebody that really understands what's happening and is in can be involved enough to be that liaison point uh, between brokers insurers and the individual and their family so the the answer to that is one of those classics it depends but key thing is you have somebody on behalf of the firm who's making it as easy as as possible uh, to facilitate that and, and then the other point that I'd like to make, which, which, which picks up on another thing that Beth said, is timing of these things. So in a scenario where somebody is no longer able to work um, and PHI is kicking in um, or income protection is, is kicking in, um, it's really important, I think, for the firm to give themselves enough time. So as Beth said, you know, you need to be able to act early. I agree with that. You need to be able to grasp the nettle. But one way of grasping the nettle is to be able to say, actually, our provisions mean that we, we've given ourselves a period of time for the benefit of all partners where, let's say, we have a deferral of the income protection over a year. And in the meantime, they're able to, they're paid out fully as partners. That gives you a really good opportunity to demonstrate that the firm is being generous to this partner. I, I think in anybody's book, if you're on full drawings, full profit share at your usual level for a year, it's pretty generous. And over that time, you can then work with the family to say, look, this isn't going to last forever. These provisions are here to make sure that you don't have to do anything rash within this period. We also have protection after that period for you, but it's going to be at a lesser level, you know, typically, well, whatever the level is, half of drawings in the last three years or whatever whatever it is. But I think buying yourself some time, so it, it, it's a species of grass in the net because you, you've, you've planned in advance and gone, this is, this is how we approach it, which means you then don't have to make things up on the hoof. You can say, we're being really generous, err on the side of generosity where you can. It's easier where you've got lots of partners, much harder when you've got a few partners. Err on the side of generosity, buy yourself some time. And I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that the people here today that are sort of representing the smaller firms would be, you know, kind of 
terrified at, at the prospect of what you've just described in terms of having a partner on full draw, but making no contribution at all. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting for a moment that that isn't the right way to manage it or that, that there's any way um, that you wouldn't end up in that situation. But I can imagine it's quite a, a difficult prospect for those firms to contemplate. You've got to match it to the size of firm that you are. Of course, yeah. And, and, and what's generous for one firm will be completely you know, too little or too much for, for another. So it's scenario specific. I'm sure, yes. And I wonder whether we can we can sort of think again a little bit about sort of the practical side of things again. And I, I'm thinking here about um, the extent to which the firm should be engaging with partners and coordinating with partners. We've talked a lot about here, here about being prepared and, and sort of joining the dots between, you know, individual partners going, oh, all right, I've got this pension or this insurance. I mean, Rachel, I, it would be great to hear from you in terms of what extent that, that should be sort of joined up because a lot of the things we've talked about on the firm side is focused just on kind of the firm. Should, should the firm be talking to partners individually saying, what have you got in place in terms of insurance? I mean, one question I always have about insurance is, can one cancel the other out if the firm have got, say, you know, kind of critical oils covered? Does that mean that one I've taken out personally with my bank is, is invalidated and I can only claim on one? I'm sure yeah. lots of people would have that question. No, it's a really good question. It does come up quite a bit, particularly, I think, with income protection. Mm. Uh, and there can be a danger where somebody is very sensibly taking it out over a period of years, the firm would have no idea about that. And some yeah. can be over-insuring. I, I think the key thing, and it, it, it's a real balance, isn't it? And depending on the, the culture of the firm, not to be too paternalistic and, and how far do you go? But I think as a minimum, what I generally see working well is often when partners become partners, there's a bit of an education piece. So James and I have been involved before in what we call induction sessions for, for want of a better word, where it's very much, this is what's happening. These are the key differences. And it's not necessarily always relying on the firm to do everything. So I think David's point is really good in that you need a, a certain individual or maybe more than one individual to be the key person that manages the awareness, but also deals with any issues that arise. But you can bring in advisors, would it be you know, tax people, legal people, HR or otherwise, and have those sessions with people to say, here's exactly what you have. And this is what you need to be communicating with your family. So I do that all the time as a financial planner. I always say to people, even if they don't want to meet me, at least bring them in for a session sometime or, or your powers of attorney so that if the worst happens, they've already had some contact with the person. And it's exactly the same with the firm. It's it's having the education piece to say, you're now a partner. Here are the things that we have in place. What you do yourself is separate, but here are the things that you won't have any longer. Um, and I think that's, it, it's a challenge, but I think what people shouldn't shy away from, and particularly people in firms, is not having that discussion at all because when the worst happens then, particularly around incapacity or death, that's then often where people discover they don't have the cover they thought they did. And then you have those difficult conversations and it can be very easily avoided with just a little bit of planning. Thank you. And, and James, I mean, you're, you're involved in those conversations. To what extent is tax relevant to these these catastrophe type moments? Because, I mean, by definition, you don't know when it's going to happen. So do, do people allow tax considerations to drive this decision making or is it just a question of educating people as to what the, the current position is and then keep your fingers crossed that it won't deteriorate in the meantime? Um, you, you, you see different attitudes from different partners. You do try to educate as much as possible, but um, people, when people are made up, usually they're quite young and healthy. And like it was mentioned earlier, people have got so much other commitments that this falls to the side. So where we can, you want to push the pension because it's making the provision for the retirement and the will 
having that just having that in place however basic it might be it's mm. it's better to have that than nothing at all yeah I think that's a really really wise advice I've worked for partners from a number of firms where the firms have um, a precedent clause that they want them to put into their will which deals with to take to go to David's point a specific nominated person in the firm as part of uh, taking their capital that's owed out and their drawings out or any annuity payments because obviously death is a retirement event um so all of all of that side of things as well and i think um an important point to i guess address is is whether death being a retirement event means that you get your overlap relief yes that's right yeah so that would on death it will trigger the overlap relief to come in so that you're in that period of the basis period in your death the overlap relief comes off and you receive the tax relief and this will be a matter for the executors to deal with because they will have to complete the tax return covering up to the date of death. So they would need to work with the firm and dealing with the, the income tax payments due on that profit. Yeah, which goes back to having somebody who knows what they're talking about <laughs> in the firm. Because I find that new partners find overlap really completely mind-blowing already, let alone um, <laughs> members of their family. And, and great planning point there for, for people to, to take note of. Ideally die towards the end of the financial period rather than the beginning of the financial period to really make make the most of that overlap relief opportunity so we're, we're just sort of t- that's a useful takeaway for everybody i think yeah we, we say that okay. to most clients yeah good yeah. <laughs> excellent i did just want to do a, a little a final poll poll question for the attendees i'm interested in understanding having had the benefit of this fantastic insights from the panelists on the the best way for firms to plan for the risk of a partner catastrophe like death, um, now having sort of seen the different considerations, whether people are minded to sort of think that maybe it's kind of a personal thing, partner death incapacity, it's fundamentally about the partner and their family, or whether at kind of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the final uh, option there, firms should have really comprehensive measures in place. You know, they should be kind of actively engaging with the partners, you know, and, and sort of everything in between. Like, I'd be really interested to see where people sort of sit on that on that spectrum now. Oh, fantastic. Well, we have done our job uh, as a panel, everybody. Um, I, I probably should have asked this question at the beginning to see if there's been a shift, but I'm, I'm delighted to see that the majority of respondents have the view that there's a really strong role for that interaction between firms and partners to, to understand um, how these things all sit together and to, to to plan for these sorts of risks. I'm going to come to the panels now, but we're going to ask the panel to think about kind of their top piece of advice on how partners and firms work together to manage manage these risks. Maybe come to you uh, first, Beth. I'm, I'm going to sound like a stuck record, but um, deal with it upfront and documentation, clarity, flexibility. Don't leave it to pick up when there's a crisis. Great. And Fiona? Well, Bearing in mind the poll results earlier, I encourage everybody to get their LPAs in place, but also notify the person responsible within the firm who executives are, who um, attorneys are, because somebody needs to start that conversation and those people will be in a in a terrible place if something were to happen. And I guess equally, not just conversation between the partnership and the partners, but part the partners and their own families about what's coming out of the partnership, because, you know, often they won't un- they won't know or understand all the ins and outs of it. So it's it goes back to consistent and clear communication. Great. Yeah. And James? I think it's like Beth said, a broken record, but making <laughs> sure that everyone knows the policies and rules and uh, who to contact if there is an issue. Um, a surviving spouse or a partner with serious illness will have a lot to worry about and a good firm will be able mm. to set out the financial arrangements quickly and in a way that's easy to understand. 
yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Rachel, any additional thoughts? I know that we've got a, a lot of great sound bites already there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I would reiterate, I think what Fiona says, the communication point, particularly family, but as a basic one, there are many firms out there still that don't have cover, basic cover around like protection and life cover, um, probably less and less so, but that's something really I think firms need to look at what the right level of cover is and to review it so that everybody's on the same page, that it works for the firm, but but also the partners. Um, it's just often an area that's neglected. Thank you. And, and finally, David, you 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 have the, the heavy kind of weight of the final words on this kind of deep, deep topic. Yeah, have somebody in the firm who's all over this and do a bit of scenario planning with the other people who are going to be involved to James's point. If you're going to be able to provide the, the, that financial data in easily digestible format, people have got to know that they're going to be responsible for doing it and what it might look like. And that's just one example of, of the critical critical role of somebody knowing their stuff and being able to be the liaison point with family and brokers, etc. Right. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I do just want to take a moment, though, to thank the panel for their insights this morning. I found it an incredibly insightful discussion. Thank you all for your different perspectives on a, on a really tricky discussion. Um, a final apology from me for such a gloomy start to the day, um, but, but a, a really important topic to cover. And uh, finally, a, a thank you to you all for joining us this morning. Thanks very much. Bye bye.